What's going on guys? Welcome to another episode of the Concord Health Podcast and today's guest is Commonwealth Gold Medalist, Delroy McQueen. Um, Delroy, you've literally got a resume bigger than my, longer than my little arms anyway. I'm only five foot six, as everyone knows. So I, I didn't even know how to introduce you because you've, you know, you've been in the sport, the strength, the sports of strength, the sport of any strength lifting, should I say, whether it be Olympic lifting or powerlifting for so long. And um, I mean, I wouldn't know where to start, but I mean, first of all, how is this the question? It's always a question and people are probably getting bored with me asking it at the moment. But again, how's lockdown going for you? How's it going for your training, for your coaching, just your mental, physical state? I mean, how, how have you coped with it? Uh, it hasn't been too bad, to be honest. In the beginning, I basically, probably about five or six weeks off training, I didn't do anything whatsoever. <clears throat> I brought my bands in from the car, probably done a few sets of bicep curls, and <laughs> that's as far as it got in one training session. But to be honest, it's done me a world of good having that sort of time off, because I had a few niggling, in it, like niggling injuries going into the lockdown. So everything's healed now. Uh, and I've been back training for probably about eight to ten weeks. And everything feels great. Um, I really feel good. The weights are moving well. Um, it's just a shame there's no competitions for a little while. Yeah. Did, did you actually find, like, after having some time off, because ha have you ever had a, a lengthy period of time off before of, of any lifting since you started? Apart from an injury, let's say. Have you yeah, most of my time off's probably been more sort of enforced time off, where I've had to sort of rest an injury or um, changing jobs and that sort of thing. So to have to sort of time off like this, well, it's kind of enforced, but it's done me a lot of good. Um, spent more time at home and just generally just not sort of stressed about sort of going into the gym thinking, oh, I must lift this weight or hit this amount of volume today and that sort of thing. So yeah. I think the mental break's done me just as much as good as the physical break. Interesting. I mean, you know, that is, that is a big thing. It's, I think, I want to say the Russian athletes, they used to prescribe an actual four weeks off a year in their programming, I believe. And that was four weeks completely off just to have a complete rest of any, any lifting or any strength training. And I think that was almost done on a yearly or two yearly basis. I mean, people out there listening, they're going to they're gonna say that I'm off slightly here because I know I am. But they literally did used to do it and there was no programming for a period of time and no lifting just to use that time to get your, their, their love back for the sport and not burn out and to get some hunger back and also just heal up from any injuries without actually being forced to take time off. Do you, do you find that you, I mean, I don't know what level you've come back in at, but do you find that you're stronger for having that time off? Right. Initially for the first week back, the first week back was awful. Um, <laughs> the lightweights felt heavy, the sort of doms and everything to go with it. But once you get past that every week, I just got better and better. And after sort of the first block of eight weeks, I felt great by the end of it. The weights were moving well. I was hitting the volume. I actually felt a lot better than I um, lift before when I lifted in my last competition. Yeah, interesting. That is, that is really interesting because it's, so, it's really difficult for us to take time off. You know, mentally, you know what it's like. We, we, you know, most of us do it powerlifting or, or, or strength training because we love it. So it's hard not to do it. But to actually to peel ourselves away... And, and know that there's going to be a longer-term benefit is really difficult to do. But I'm glad, actually, and people should take note, you know, people that are listening to say that, to, for you to say that, actually, you're feeling great. For having, how, how much time did you actually have off? I had a probably about six weeks off in total, and that's no training at all. Really? 
And, and did you do any mobility work, any stretching, or you just completely just sacked it off and chilled? In the first week, I had all good intentions. I was going to do mobility work, work with bands. Um, I had a regime written out, which I was going to follow. And then after like probably half a session in, I thought, you know what, this is not going to work. I'm never going to stick to this. And the motivation was just wasn't there to do it. So I thought, I'm just going to take the time off and just see how that goes. And then my body did need a break as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite glad I did it. No, no, that's fair enough. And it's, um, no, I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you say that actually and um, you find that probably most of your little niggles have healed up in that time and your body you've got such good muscle memory I mean what you've been how long have you been lifting for in excess of what about 30 years or something yeah if you include my uh, weightlifting career alongside my powerlifting career it's been there 30 years competitive lifting yeah so take it from the start so that's I mean that's a long time your body was probably like over the moon with a little bit of rest. Yeah, bear in mind in that time, I've never, every single year, I've competed every year. Have you really? Yeah. Never had a year off competition ever? Never had a year off competition. I've probably had, probably like, probably about sort of 11 months not competing, but during that sort of period of time I trained. But I've never had sort of full year off competing. We've all pretty much competed every year. Damn, I love that. That's commitment. That, that's really cool. But this year, have you competed this year so far? I've competed twice this year. I competed back in January okay. at the Alan Collins Cup, but I wasn't 100% there because I basically got a bit of like a groin issue or groin tear back in December. So I only really went there just to qualify for like the British and the European Championships. And then after that, I competed at Tattoos and Strong. But even still at that point, it was like almost like survival training. I wasn't sort of 100% of the time that competition come round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I was going to say, this year could be the... The year you actually don't compete if it if it carries on this lockdown for too long. But you know, I've said that gyms are going to be open now anyway. So yeah, the gyms open on the twenty fifth, I believe that is. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people buzzing and a lot of people very sore in that first week if they haven't been. Yeah, there. I think people just need to be sensible in that first week. I can see there being a very high rate of injuries. Like a lot of people you see on social media, so I can't wait till the twenty fifth. I'm going to go in the gym and smash it, hit PBs and stuff like that. It's just when you go in there, you need to put the ego to one side and just realise your weights are going to be, could be anything for 30% down or more. And it's yeah. all going to feel heavy for the first week. But four weeks in, you're going to feel great for having the break. That's, that's actually, you know what, it's an interesting point we're covering now. I was going to start with your, I was going to move on to your history of training now and where it started. But since we're on this point, you're a guy with a lot of experience and I've also backed it up with a lot of, um, a lot of achievements. So if you, if you had advice for anyone, either you were coaching or anyone else listening, about going back into the gym now, what, what would you say to them? Obviously, you just said take it, you know, don't go in like 100 mile an hour, but what advice would you, would you give someone specifically? I would take it really, really easy. I'd probably do more of like, um, like a hypertrophy block or some sort of like high volume work and start off really light, like 50% of your maxes is going to be fine. And then just basically maybe do some linear progression over a few weeks just to build up a bit of work capacity more than anything else. Yeah, Rome wasn't built in a night, hey? Like yeah, the, I think the best way you can pull it is, um, I think a phrase from Louis Simmons, strength is measured in time. So if you can train longer and remain more injury-free over time, you will get stronger. And it just comes down to patience. So true. I heard um, Tony Cliff talking about that and he was saying you know, one of the biggest things for him in achieving what he's achieved is that he's been consistent, but he's never actually had a major injury. So it's allowing, it's allowed him to kind of run 20 odd years or, or whatever it's been for him without 
any major breaks because I feel like it's the same in a lot of sport, but particularly Olympic lifting, which I'm not so well versed with because I haven't done it before, but I presume it's the same, or powerlifting, is it's not like, you know, if you have to have a year off for a horror injury, it's really going to set you back a lot. You know, it's because it, it's so objective in terms of the increments and the increases. Whereas let's say you're a, I don't know, a footballer, you, you know, your technique is, is set in stone. And yes, you, when you come back in, you're going to be unfit and it's going to take you a little while to get your touch back. But you get a couple of months good training under your belt, you, you'll be back, you know, on the pitch and you'll be fine. Um, yeah, I think, I think the main thing is there is, like, if you look at for going back to a sport like football and that sort of thing, you haven't got a psychological barrier. So if you injure yourself, say, on a specific way, What's your mindset going to be when you sort of build the weights back up when the time comes where you have to lift that get weight again? Yeah. That's where it's going to sort of make or break you. But I think once you get past that hurdle, then you can sort of move forward. But you're going to have that mental barrier all the way up to that point of lifting that weight again. You just injure yourself on. Yeah, so true. So, I mean, what you say there is, is so true. It's just that be easy with yourself because just, just consistency and time is going to build strength or whatever happens. Um, so, like... Let's find out about your history and where it all started. I know you're a London boy like me. Um, where, where, so whereabouts in London you brought up originally? Um, for, I'm originally from West London. I lived on the White City Estate pretty much from when I was born up to when I was about 21 years old. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I lived quite a long period of time in London. I went to Hammersmith School, which is like literally two-minute walks from the flat that uh, my mum lived at. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. So you, you I... I hear you got into lifting through school, right? Is that how it all started? Yeah, it's by ch- more chance than anything else. Like in school, it's predominantly things like football all the time in school, and that was the main sport for that school. And then they come to a stage where they had options of doing other sports, and one of the options was basically like weight training, stroke weightlifting. So I thought, you know, um, as like at 15 years old, you sort of walk around thinking, I want to develop more muscle, I want to be stronger. So I went along to actually basically start weight training and sort of move into weightlifting. Yeah, so were you, you um, I mean, it's, I mean, that's quite unusual. We never had anything like that in my school when I was, when I was growing up, any programs for strength training or weightlifting at all. Was that, was that a norm back then? Was that, or was that just something specific to your school and it was just like a very random thing? No, it's by chance more than anything else. So the weightlifting coach that started me off um, basically contacted the school and asked if he could he was able to go into the sort of lessons and like teach weight training, weightlifting in the lessons because he wanted to sort of um, find a weightlifter. And the reason that come about is he was a national powerlifting coach for the British women's team. And I think so he had a conversation with someone and they said basically you'll never be able to start a weightlifter from scratch and build them up to any decent level. So um, John Jackson was the guy that started me off and John would basically take up a challenge. So he took the challenge up and went into school basically to find a weightlifter. And he found one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. to be honest, when I started, I wasn't the best in the class. I didn't pick the technique up as easy as others. But with me, I was consistent and went training. And I just went, once I started, I just wanted to get better and better and better and just see where I could take it. Yeah, so were you, I mean, you said you didn't pick up the technique straight away, but were you, were you naturally strong, if that makes sense? Were you quite, you know, at school, you know what it's like, you know if you're fairly strong compared to the other kids, and did you think, did you ever think that 
straight away, actually, I could be quite good at this or, or some sort of strength sport? Was that in your mind? Um, I was physically pretty strong, but weightlifting is a funny sport. As, much, as strong as you can, you, you are, if you walk in there to learn weightlifting, the ego goes right out the window because the movements are so difficult to perform and really hard to learn. So in the early stages when lifting, the strength don't really come into it. It's just more mobility and being able to get in a position and also learning to coordinate your body to those movements. Yeah, it's, t- it's tough. I mean, I've learned to snatch and snatch especially. It's so difficult. I mean, if you're not, again, you're not 100 times better than me, but if, you're, if you just don't have the mobility, it's like game over, no matter how strong you are. The snatch is a difficult one. Um, a lot of people probably say I'm wrong here. But if you start lifting later in life, you're never in weightlifting going to reach your true potential. Interesting. Um, you have to, one, weightlifting is one of those sports that you have to start young. And even when I started at the time, 15 was basically towards the end of the schoolboy career. So I think I only competed as schoolboy like for one year. So wow. in terms of that, that's pretty late to start because a lot of the other guys that might have started with me or I competed against probably had between five anywhere from five to three years experience or lifted longer than I had before I went to compete against them. Damn. And do you say that because it's um, a little bit like gymnastics? Do you say that because, you know, if, if someone's not picked gymnastics up from like four, five, six years old, it just, they don't, you know, they never pick it up properly. Do you say that because it's a, a muscle memory thing or a mobility thing or a fear type thing? What, I mean, what it's all of those. It's the you know, neurological efficiency, it's like the mentality and fear as well. Like if you put a heavy weight on the bar to, for Olympic lifting and thinking, you know, I've got to jump underneath that weight. Yeah. That weight's moving up and I'm moving down underneath it. So it, it's, all, it's all the above there. And it just really, t- it's like if you look at Olympic lifting, it's basically gymnastics with weights. Yeah, literally that is. I mean, and the movements are hard to perform. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's, and I'll probably get slated for this, but... It's to me, to 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 my eye, it's more impressive than powerlifting. It, it, it just in terms of, not, I mean, watching someone shift a lot of weight is impressive and, and amazing. But watching someone shift that weight with that kind of mobility is just like, I mean, everyone can squat, whether they squat good or bad. Like you can teach most people to squat. But like teaching someone an Olympic lift, most people sit and watch it. You sit and watch the Olympics and think, I actually don't even know where I'd start. Do you know what I mean? You, you don't even know how how someone getting that weight above their head. Whether it's the forty-seven kilo Chinese women or the huge guys, you just can't. You know, your mind. And I'm someone that trains. I still can't get my head around it. To be honest, it's quite. I used to think like that. It's quite tough to register. But then when I come across, like we started to do some research into powerlifting and I come across people like Ed Cohn, um, there's British lifters like Brian Reynolds and Tony Stevens. And when I come across those sort of guys and watch them lift, then I thought, you know, it's all comparable. Um, I don't think one feat of strength is any um, better or more impressive than the other. Because I've just, now I think they're all amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, they are and they really are. You know, you look at what... I mean, there's so many examples going back years, but even more recently, the likes of what like Eddie Hall and Scott Pathor have done and all the, those sort of things. It's just incredible, to be honest. To, to, for a human being to shift that amount of weight, it is actually it's really crazy. It's, it's incredible because like 20 years ago, no one thought, ever thought things like that would ever happen. 
Like, for example, back like 15, 20 years ago, no one ever thought a man would deadlift a thousand pounds and then come along and come along Andy Bolton and Andy Bolton done that, yeah. which for me is probably one of the most impressive feats of strength in history. Because if he didn't do that, I very much doubt you'd have had the guys like Four and Edtall doing 500 kilos today because that was just the impossible task that no one would ever thought would happen. It's like saying now, will someone run like a, a sub nine second hundred metres? Yeah. That's how phenomenal that lift Andy Bolton done is comparable to something like that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when you put it like that, it's so true. And someone like him has to knock down, the, the, you know, has to kick down that door first. And then it becomes possible in people's minds. You know, if one person's done it, it has to be possible. It's like, it's like the Roger Bannister, do you know what I mean? Running, um, running the five-minute mile of, it's, it's the same sort of thing, right? And then everyone started doing it. Um, so, you started when you were, what, 15? Yeah, I started when I was 15. And then after probably two or three months training, I'd done my first competition at Crystal Palace which was the London Schools Championships. Um, yeah, at that stage, I thought I was really good. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do really well in this competition. And with the weights I've done compared to my PBs, I did do very well. But I only finished like seventh or eighth place. Compared to the guys that finished above me, I just saw that as that's not good enough. Yeah. Um, and I found that that was quite hard to take walking away. But in a sense, I think that was the best thing that happened to me, sort of getting a lower place like that, because I think that made me work a lot harder and give me sort of goals to reach along the way, like a lot of short-term goals. So every competition I went to, I wanted to beat one of the people that beat me in the previous competition until I got to the person who won the competition, then I eventually beat them. Yeah, sure. And, and were, you, were you being programmed and coached consistently, like at that, that age, or were you trying to figure out a lot yourself. Obviously, you would have been coaching technique, but what about the actual programming back then? Was it... Like back then, I was programmed. So pretty much my, a lot of my lifting career, I was programmed. So when I first started in those sort of early stages, through till um, probably towards the end of my junior career, I was coached by the guy that started me in weightlifting, John Jackson. So he took me all the way from nothing to being sort of British junior champion. And also under his guidance, I competed in the World Weightlifting uh, Men's World Weightlifting Championships as a junior with John coaching me as well. Amazing. So I went quite a long way, and then unfortunately the gym closed down, and then I had to sort of uh, move where I trained. So I went along and trained at Crystal Palace. Yeah. Okay. That 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 must have been. So that that was your first experience on the international scene, was it? Sorry. Was that your first experience on the international scene? No, I competed as a junior, so um, my first international was a junior, was in like 1994, and I competed in, um, trying to think, what it would be now, it would have been the World Junior Championships, and that was in Indonesia, in Jakarta. That, that must have been an amazing experience. For oh, it is, it's absolutely incredible, sort of being sort of like, um, so 18, 19 years old, and travelling out to a country like that. And just in spirits of different cultures, lifting in different environments was incredible. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that must have been, that must have been super exciting. Um, I mean, you were representing Team GB, right, I presume? Yeah, representing Great Britain, literally from uh, 1994 all the way through till probably about 2003, 2004. Um, I competed at international weightlifting, uh, international level in weightlifting. 
do, do you remember do you remember the feeling and everyone's described it differently but do you remember the feeling of getting a call up to the international team was it super like wow this is this is friggin' exciting this is cool i'm actually going to c- compete for team gb like compete for my country yeah it was exciting but it was scary at the same time because um it's like being in your first international you feel like i need to perform i don't want to let anyone down and also, in the back of your mind, you sort of want to go out there and prove like, to everyone that you, you deserve to be there. And it's not just the fact you hit the qualifying title just to make it there. You just wanted to sort of fit in with the other world-class weightlifters and perform on that sort of standard with them. Yeah, sure, I hear that. And I suppose with, with, you know, with experience and with time, your mind gets a lot, you know, a lot of that leaves you and you get much more focused on the platform with what, what it is you actually have to do, even though you have a job that you have to do and you prepare for. Yeah, after like a, um, a few internationals, I found it probably easier to compete at internationals, just being in that mindset, than just competing, let's say, like a regional qualifier and that sort of thing. Because yeah. like, I could always guarantee, like at internationals, nine times out of ten, I could always perform really well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's... Um, in terms of your Olympic lifting career, what, so what are your PVs? What sort of numbers you, have you put up? Um, when I competed in the Commonwealth Games in 2002, I'd done 165 kilo snatch and I won a gold in the snatch. It's, the, it's one of those medals that no one ever expected me to win. Um, but it's one of those, just determination that, that's pretty much got me through on that lift. Um, in the Commonwealth Games, I've done a 210 kilo clean and jerk which broke the Commonwealth um, Games record by about 17 and a half kilos. Um, and totaled, I think it was 375, and that was a Games record as well. At the time, that was their um, heaviest total in the Commonwealth Games um, when they changed the body weights that any athlete had done until the following day when the Super Heavyweight's done that little bit more. No, that's freaking awesome. I mean, I've watched those lifts, and I mean... I mean, it's absolutely incredible. You, you must have been, considering that's in front of your home crowd, you must have been absolutely buzzing. I, I mean, I was reading, and I don't know how true this is, is, but I was reading that there was a Canadian who was favourite. Michael Sandor. Yeah. And um, it wasn't, I mean, this is just on the write-up on BBC, but I was reading that you are not, not so much an, an underdog, but... Uh, I was a massive underdog in that competition, in all fairness. Okay. Um, let, put it in perspective, in the qualifiers earlier in the year, I finished second in the qualifiers. Um, Akos Sandor um, won the Commonwealth Games, the two previous games before that, and no one thought, no one thought he was going to get beaten. All right, so let's, talk, let, let's stay on this, because, I mean, number one, it's an unbelievable achievement, and number two, there's something in there, like a champion's mindset. What... Talk about your preparation to the games and what your mentality was like going into it once you were there. Um, I mean, what did you have in mind? Just, just talk, talk me through the whole thing because this is exciting to me. Well, if I go back in time a little bit and then yeah. I could just build the picture up a little bit. Yeah, please. So if we go back to like 1998, um, which was the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, um, I, um, I was in good shape before the qualifiers. And I 100% thought I was going to qualify for the Commonwealth Games. And then I got to the qualifiers and the first two places were going to go to the Commonwealth Games and I finished in third place. So I missed out on the Games, which is absolutely heartbreaking. So I went away, um, picked myself up, started training. So, okay, next Games, I'm going to make the next Commonwealth Games. 
and then we got to sort of must have been like 2000 I think it was um or so no late 1999 um I was training and I was doing snatch with straps and I was doing sets of three uh, 140 kilos so I've done my first three sets of three and I had one more set to go and on the final rep of the final set I dislocated my elbow oh. yeah and I completely tore the medial ligament so I, I was having physio on my elbow and one of the physios um, checked my elbow to see if the leg, uh, the ligament had been damaged or lax. And they checked my elbow and they basically, they didn't say anything to me. They just wrote me a letter and told me, look, go to your weightlifting team doctor and give him this letter. So I went and saw the weightlifting team doctor. I traveled down to see him. Um, I gave him the letter and then he just read it. And his exact words, he's a really sort of posh guy, well to do, didn't really swear or anything like that. was, oh my fucking God. <laughs> when he said that I knew there was a bit of a problem so he sent me for an MRI and that confirmed the medial ligament was completely torn so um, at that point in time there was no weightlifter ever recorded to come back from that sort of injury so he took me to one of his friends like an orthopaedic specialist um, and I went and spoke to him he tested the joint um, and he was a really smart smart person he, and he knew a lot about um, various other sports and he said this injury is quite common in baseball with baseball pitchers um, tearing the medial ligament. So he, he explained to me the type of surgery that he could perform. But he said because it's never been done on the weightlifter, there's no guarantees it would work. Um, so immediately uh, I was like, okay, I can't do anything now. So what have I got to lose by having the surgery? Yeah. So I had the surgery done um, and done the rehab absolutely religiously. So I had the surgery done in February, and then by September that year, I was back competing. Really? Yeah. So that's what? That's like six months? Six yeah, months. bearing in mind, the surgeon said, um, because I had surgery beginning of February, they said it's probably going to be 18 months before you even pick up a weight. Fuck. Yeah, so I literally, everything I was told to do by the surgeons, the physio, I've done it absolutely religiously. I didn't do any weightlifting or weight training at all. All I've done purely was just to religiously do the rehab work. Yeah. And then things progressed really, really well. And I went to see the surgeon and he said, you can't go back to normal training, but you can go back to doing the light movements of training. Then I spoke to my coach, Keith Morgan, and then we just basically slowly started building things up and the strength come back really, really quick. I was able to stabilise the weight above my head really, really well. And in the end, it was happened to be a blessing because that elbow dislocated used to hyperextend slightly. So after the surgery, it no longer hyperextended. I could support the weights a lot better than, than even earlier in my lifting career um, before I had the injury. That, that, I mean, forget the physical side because that's just horrific and everyone knows. But that, I mean, that's quite a difficult injury to come back from mentally, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, I did, all that, for me, I, I, did, I just saw I got another, another opportunity. So... For me in my head, all I needed to do is get back to the weight I injured myself on and just do that session, four sets of three, and get that final rep. Once I've done that, I know there's not going to be a problem. And that's all I had to do in my head. I was, they tried to send me to like a sports psychologist to talk about it, and I lasted probably 20 minutes of the first session. And I said, look, I'm no disrespect or anything like that. This is just not for me. I know what I have to do and have to achieve. If I can't achieve that goal, then I've got no place with trying to be an international weightlifter. Yeah. So all I've done is went away and just focused purely on that.
fair play to you. There's obviously something in there that 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 driven mindset, which are, which a lot of you know top athletes or um, people that train have got, and it's just you you refuse to take no for an answer, basically. And yeah, I think sometimes you t- you have to be sort of stubborn, but in a good way. Yeah, I mean, thank God, thank God, you did just think, you know, stuff it and crack on. And what we, I mean, by the sounds of it, you had nothing to lose anyway. To be honest, at that stage, when they're like, when he says, "Oh fuck," and you got to get an operation, then what have you got to lose? You get the off and do the rehab, and you know, there's no choice if you want to get back to it. I suppose you just yeah. If it did, if it's better than before the operation, at least I had some sort of chance there, rather than no chance at all. Yeah. So, okay, so you started, you, you started rehabbing from the injury. And when you were back lifting properly by 2000? Yeah, so I injured the elbow in um, probably the end of 1999. Mm-hmm. I had surgery um, the, right at the beginning of February 2000. And then I'd done my first competition back, which is basically just a qualifier um, in September. Okay, okay. And, and that went okay? You were like, you were strong by then, you felt good? Yeah, my coach was smart about it. He said, look, we're going to lift like reasonable weights, but we're not going to sort of push it to all-out maxes. So he's going to do it, get a feel for being in competition, and then what we're going to do is increase the weight from competition to competition rather than go all-out in your first one. So basically, I just done as I was told, and I listened. Every weight he told me to lift, I lifted religiously. Um, Even if it felt easy, I just stuck to the program, just focused on basically being 100% in competitions. Yeah, okay, interesting. So you talk about the build-up to the games then from here, I guess. Yeah, the build-up to the games, um, they started doing grant funding. So basically I'll cut my hours from being like full-time to working part-time to focus on training um, and just focus purely on eat, sleep, train. It's just purely for the Commonwealth Games. Um, just my Because it was in Manchester, it was just a big opportunity and that, that opportunity was never going to come again for me. Yeah, and, and you uh, you compete at 110? No, the weight class in weightlifting are different. So I competed under 105 kilos. I think I weighed in probably about 100, 101 kilos. Okay, so what do you walk at? Uh, what did you walk around at back then? About that, so I never cut weight at that stage. So whatever I competed, I, that's what I walked around at. Okay, fine. So le- leading up, what's, what was in your mind? I mean, because you said you're a massive underdog, but did... Did you think that or did your coaches think that? I mean, did, did you have it in your mind that you were going there for that gold medal or did it just start coming together? At the beginning of the build-up for the Commonwealth Games, my main goal was, you know, I just want gold and a clean and jerk. That's it. Yeah. And then well, my snatch was coming along really, really well. And then I had that sort of breakthrough on the snatch. I thought, hang on a minute, this, this is a little bit different. I could be on for the gold medal here. Yeah. If I was knowing what ACOS has done in previous years. So I just kept my head down, just trained on the snatch, and I just got better and better. And by the time I got to the games, my opening lift was actually more than my PB in my previous competition. Serious? Wow. So I literally, I opened on my PB, and then I took two small jumps after that, and then got two more PBs, and the third lift ended up being the gold medal lift. Uh, it must have been a big buzz in front of a home crowd. Oh, it was massive like being in front of your whole crowd and just knowing that you won a gold medal the feeling it just can't be described you probably never get that feeling back again such a adrenaline buzz isn't it that's what a lot of athletes say you know you get athletes that for some reason they go off the rails slightly 
like later on in life, like a footballer or again, I'm referring to those kind of sports where you get this big buzz of a win, some sort of win with a big crowd. And they just, they say they can't replicate that, that buzz, that feeling they had and, you know, makes it, sends them off the rails a little bit. And, you know, I can relate to that, having, having boxed for years in my career and, and, and getting these, you know, I've boxed internationally and getting these big wins um, in front of big crowds and same for you, like a, a Commonwealth gold medalist in front of what I presume would, would, I mean, it must have been quite a big, heavy crowd. Yeah, it's a packed out theatre, so um, I'm not sure what the capacity was. Oh, it must have been such a buzz, that is incredible. So you, before I move on to your powerlifting career and your transition, what, um, so what was your um, achievements as an Olympic lifter? Just like tell, um, to tell the audience, obviously Commonwealth gold, uh, yeah, I won three golds at the Commonwealth Games. Um, British record holders, I'd hold the British record in the uh, clean and jerk and British record in the total. Um, no one's beat that since 2002. Nice. Um, I've actually equaled the British record on the snatch. So for me in itself, that's a big achievement because that wasn't my best lift. Yeah. Um, I've been British champion in weightlifting. Did you do that uh, pre or post injury, the record in the snatch? Post. Ah, okay. Okay. Let's put it this way, post-injury, my record in the snatch, um, so pre-injury, my best was probably about 150 kilos maybe, so I've done 15 kilos more um, post-injury. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, it's, um, it's obviously seemed like a big, big turning point, that injury. I wonder if you feel like, and this is probably impossible to answer, but if you feel like you would have gone on to win that gold at the Commonwealth Games without getting that injury. Mate, I mean, I don't know, did that really properly dial in and refocus you? I think without that, without that injury, I'd have probably went to that Games and I'd have probably got a gold and a clean and jerk and that would have been it. Um, I wouldn't have got a medal in the snatch because of that, I wouldn't have probably won on the total. So I think that, that was the sort of turning point in my sort of weightlifting career is actually getting that injury. Yeah, this is it. I mean, it's like the old saying, isn't it? There's no such thing as losses, just learning experiences. And that obviously was a major, major turning point. Yeah, and I think sometimes all it is, is like you realise you get given a second chance and you think, hang on a minute, not many people get given a second chance of this sort of thing. Yeah. So it's either I use this opportunity and take that chance or I don't use that chance at all. So I had to sort of take that chance to see how good I could have, could be. Yeah, yeah. So powerlifting. What, what, I mean, why the decision to change and how did that come about? Uh, well, it's quite an interesting one, really. Back in um, 2004, I um, was qualifying for the, I'm trying to think, it must have been the Olympics in Greece. So um, at that time, I was in good shape um, and I thought I was. 2004, I think. Yeah, yeah. Athens, that's it. that's it. So I was in good shape and I thought, yeah, I can qualify for the Olympics. But GB, with the Olympics or qualification, they only had one place at the Olympics. So what they said basically is um, with the weightlifting equivalent of the Wilkes, whatever it was back then, yeah. the person with the highest score would get that place and go to the Olympic Games. So I trained to achieve that. And I was good shape walking into it and I thought I was actually going to go. So I flew to the Ukraine and we um, landed, got to the hotel and settled in and everything else. Then they had a meeting. And then they said, basically, the person who gets the highest place in Europe will go to the Olympic Games. Um, someone competing in the 64 kilo class and the standard that year wasn't particularly high in that class and they had a few bombers 
and that sort of thing. So they got a really high place based on that. Um, and the 105 kilo class was probably the most competitive. And I knew I wasn't going to get Olympic place. So before I even stepped on the platform, I just didn't want to be there. I just went there, made some token total, and I knew my lifting career was finished at that stage. So, so how does that work? You're saying that Team GB was only going to take one lifter? Yeah, it's just Olympic qualifying. Client. So like, if you look at like, wherever you're ranked in the world rankings, yeah. basically you get certain amounts. So like, so for example, the top, say, five teams like China, Russia, etc., right. will get a full team of athletes. Then it got scaled down after that. So GB only ended up basically based on those or that ranking system at that particular time had one athlete. So for example, um, if you look at the 2012 Olympics, yeah. GB had a full team because they're the host nation. Right. Um, and I'd say out of the men's squad, maybe two of the guys in the men's squad would have actually made the 2002 Commonwealth Games. Right. Okay. So it just shows there. So you've got a lot of guys that have been to the Olympics, but if you compare them to lifters of the past that haven't been there, probably not quite as good. I mean, that's oh, a bit fucked up, really. I mean, I don't know how to articulate that, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem right. I mean, if, if you're, I don't know, as an individual, if you're strong enough to be there, it almost feels like you should be there, but... Sometimes in life things happen for a reason. Maybe if I did go to the Olympic Games and that sort of thing, maybe I wouldn't have switched to powerlifting. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes you just have to sort of take those things rather than sort of sit down, I could have done this, I could have done this. In my eyes, I never done that. I just took a different journey. Wait, so was it an immediate switch? You decided like, after, the, um, after that, you know, the uh, qualifying for the Olympics, um, after that whole experience, did you decide, right, that's it, I'm going to start powerlifting, or did you take a bit of time out? And how did that Initially, what it was, I was going to take a break from my weightlifting for six months or so, and then go back to it. And then I was in the gym, just, I, went, I was just doing gym training, just general sort of um, weight training and stuff. And then there's in the gym, and someone said to me, um, that, that guy over there, he's British powerlifting champion, um, what would happen if you lift against him? And I looked, and I thought, he's the same weight category, because it was around about the same weight category. I thought, you know what? Let's find out. But back then, there was no raw lifting. It was just all equipped. And he competed like multiply equipped. Yeah. So I went away, done some sort of research on what suits to buy and everything else. And then basically just started training to do that, just to see where it would take me. But to compete against him, I'd have to lift at the British Championships. Because he already qualified, he didn't have to compete in the qualifiers. Yeah. So I uh, went along to the qualifiers, um, and I finished second at the qualifier, and then six weeks later, I won the British. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, after not, not that long powerlifting, I mean, that's crazy. So there was, there was obviously a big crossover, because I find Olympic lifters are, I don't know how to really say this, but they're good squatters. Because their technique is good, but maybe not super strong? Or is that... Uh, no, right, this is probably going to upset a lot of people. Some Olympic lifters are very, very good squatters, and a lot of them are not. What you find with Olympic lifters, if you watch them train, is they a lot of it's momentum. So they drop really fast in the squat and get a nice recoil out of the squat, and almost use that recoil to get themselves two-thirds of the way up. Then they'll have to fight for a sticking point when the weight gets heavy. Using that spring out of the hole, basically. Yeah, so where powerlifting, you've got to go down a little bit more controlled and drive up. Weightlifting just create a lot of momentum. Okay. 
So, again, it's just different sports. That's what you need to do to drive out the bottom of your cleans and that sort of thing. So, were you doing a lot of bench pressing and things before? I didn't bench press at all when I was Olympic lifting. Purely for the mobility, um, in terms of getting the weight above my head, that would have probably hindered it. So, I didn't do any bench pressing whatsoever. Interesting. So, you, I mean, technically, I can imagine you picked it up really quickly. But did, did the strength games, did they come really quickly as well? Because for something you hadn't done before, I'd imagine but you're a strong guy naturally with a lot of um, a lot of background of training. Did, you, did you take to it like a fish to water? Um, I took to it really well simply because the um, I, when I was Olympic lifting, um, I was literally the only Olympic, lifting, Olymp, Olympic lifter that sort of carried on within the club that I trained at. Yeah. The other guys in the club were powerlifters and very, very good powerlifters. There was world champions there. Like there was a guy like um, Rodney Hyperlite who competed at um, 67 kilos and he was doing like 300 plus kilo squats. You, you could call it a single ply suit, but it's probably no better than the singlets that you have today and some sort of crappy knee wraps. Yeah. And he was doing 300 kilo squats or reps and deadlifting over 300 kilos. Um, I trained in the same gym. You might have heard of him, Andrew Rodney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I trained in the same gym as him, and he was absolutely phenomenal. You'd see him like do like three hundred and sort of forty, three hundred and fifty kilo squats, like it was an empty bar. Mm-hmm. So pretty much my whole lifting career, I, I literally watched the powerlifters train all the time. So with me, I had all this. I knew what I needed to do, basically for the experience of watching those guys train. Yeah. So so tell us what some of your achievements, powerlifting, and your um, your top lifts. Um, powerlifting, um, I've been multiply quick world champion um, twice, um, raw with wraps world champion in the GPC, I've competed at WPC, um, I've competed in sort of pro competitions like Battle of the Boyne, yeah. um, I've qualified for the, um, I'm trying to think what the other ones are, um, but the boss of bosses, but I've never been in the position to take the qualifying spot, but I've got an open invitation for that. Yeah. Um, American Open, I qualified for a couple of years ago. So a lot of the big sort of competitions across the world, I pretty much qualified for in my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see. I see. I've got I've got a lot of it up in front of me here. You've seen you've done quite a few worlds. Was it your last world was in twenty fourteen? Is that right? No, I think my last one might have been later than that. Actually, it been twenty seventeen. That would have been the uh, GPC World Championships. That's it. Yeah. Sorry, opening wraps. And you won that? Yeah, I won it quite comfortably, that one. Put up some big numbers there. Uh, I've got them reasonable numbers. I know I can do um, quite a way and above those numbers if I get a clear run into competition. Yeah. So even like after the lockdown now and getting back to where I am, I'm actually a lot stronger than the numbers I've put down on paper. Yeah, so, so you're, you're competing at what, what weight class now? Um, I was planning to compete at 110, but the lockdown done me quite a big fa- big favour because I lost weight initially in the lockdown, so I'd normally walk around about 115 kilos. And then sort of after six weeks of training and just not sort of taking the amount of calories I should be, I probably dropped down to about 111. Okay. And then once I started eating normally again and training properly, I'm up to about weighing about 120 kilos now. Okay, okay. So, so that feel cool. much, much better at that sort of body weight. But I think the reason I weren't able to put the weight on, but because my body wasn't rested, so it was always sort of run down and that sort of thing. But now I had the rest and got back into training with the right nutrition and the healed body, the weight just got shot back up. So, so when you when you were Olympic lifting, how many days a week were you training? 
I've probably trained about five or six days a week when I was Olympic lifting. And now you're Four days a week. Okay, so you're strict on four days a week. And do you, um, you program yourself or you program? Yeah, I program myself. But with me, it's quite interesting because um, Andy Bolton, I pretty much speak to him pretty much most days on the phone. And then, in a sense, like I've got a lot of ideas and he's got a lot of ideas. So with um, some conversations we've had, I've, we've pretty much sort of gelled those ideas together. Yeah. And, and so far, it's worked really, really well. Just tweaking things and just making tweaks along the way. It's good to get um, some sort of outside voice, isn't it? Sometimes we, we don't, even with all the experience, I guess, don't see everything ourselves. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, like with me, I can hit loads and loads of volume, uh, quite a high intensity. And probably, I can hit probably more volume than most. So sometimes you might hit a, like an okay training session. You think that was easy in comparison because I'm always able to do that much more. So it's like reining that back it back in a little bit and just focusing sort of more on sort of speed and technique of the movement. So what I tend to do is work up to sort of one heavy set and then drop down and do a lot of sort of speed and dynamic work after that top heavy set. Yeah. So have you have you changed your nutrition dramatically to to get up in weight and what what does your nutrition normally look like? My nutrition is basically just everything in moderation. Just make sure I get enough protein in. I'm not one of these people that is like eats like regimented six meals a day, eating chicken, rice, and that sort of thing. That's just not me. Yeah. Um, so it's just everything in moderation and like a big variety of foods, um, and just not eating too much of the wrong foods. Yeah, yeah. Did you find? I mean, it's a silly question because I think I know the answer. But did you find if you do? deviate from and, and start eating the wrong foods it affects your performance yeah it just feels sluggish and that sort of thing because i've tried other diets before and i've tried eating like really clean like rice with every meal um a uh, lot of like sort of like sort of um a lot of protein probably a little bit too much protein and i just i just felt sort of sluggish i didn't feel i feel like my body was digesting the foods that well yeah. and that sort of thing so as soon as i switched back to having a bigger variety of foods and I'm not saying junk food, but just a bigger variety of different foods. I find my body was just able to handle that a lot better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would you, I mean, you say a variety. I'm just trying to give people something a bit more specific. And would it be like, do you have any staples? Do you have a few staple foods that would be in your diet? You find yeah, my staple foods in the diet is like a lot of eggs, um, like a lot of red meat. So a lot of like sirloin steak, um, lean steak mince. Um, I have chicken, but I don't have loads and loads of chicken. I'm probably more sort of like sort of steak and sort of red meat orientated in terms of sort of taking the protein in. And in terms of carbohydrates, I've tried sort of just being predominantly rice and it just didn't do me any good. So I like sort of potatoes, sweet potatoes, a little bit of rice, pasta. So just, just vary it up so I'm not eating the same thing every meal. Yeah, there's a lot to be said that, you know, if that if that's what works for you, a happy athlete is going to perform well, as simple as that. I mean, so it makes the diet in particular can make people so frigging unhappy in terms of just the way they feel and their mindset. They just don't train as well. So actually, I found with some people, it's better to deviate somewhat, make sure they're happy as well as feel pretty, pretty good when they go into the gym and it works for them. Yeah, I think that's the key there is just keeping it balanced more than anything else. Um, so, for example, I think the biggest problem with, say, a sport like powerlifting or weightlifting, that sort of thing, you start going to people to do diets, and normally they're sort of bodybuilding-dominated diets. So it's eating sort of a, lots of like sort of that type of food. 
So in a sense, you're not going to have the sort of high energy levels to train. You're not particularly going to feel great all the time and that sort of thing. And also just eating one type of food. So if you have a bodybuilding diet, a lot of it is predominantly rice, green veg, chicken, yeah. pretty much every meal. Um, and I, I don't see that as being healthy. I don't think it's necessary either. It's, like, it's No, for a strength sport, it's not. And I think it's more of a hindrance um, than anything else in that way. Oh, I have to say I agree with that. I really do agree with that. And I think variety within someone's limits, you know, if someone, if something works for someone, whether, I don't know, it's a slightly more paleo or keto diet or something that's higher carb or varied, but having some variation or quite a lot of variation within whatever someone's restrictions are or whatever works for someone is key. When you're doing that, I mean, put it this way, I've never, I don't meet many happy bodybuilders. <laughs> not when they're, not when they're going for a comp. Uh, you'd, they look absolutely phenomenal, but on that particular day, it's probably the worst they'll ever feel in their entire life. Just dragging their asses round, like fucking dying and eating apple sauce or whatever they're doing. I think, man, actually, they're probably they're probably the weakest they'll ever be on that day. <laughs> but the crazy thing is, it's the sort of mid-level bodybuilders are like that. If you see the guys at the Mr. Olympia, it's it's not like that at all. Like a guy like Ronnie Coleman. You didn't see him in terms of that, like that depleted or that measurable going into a show. You never saw that. So they're doing something completely different. It comes like, I think it comes to a bigger variety of food. Like if you watch Ronnie Coleman's videos, he weren't just having rice and chicken every meal. He's had a big variety of food. And he just basically knew how much he needed to eat it to basically maintain that size and mass. Mm -hmm. And and I think, again, there's, there's probably a crossover in what you're saying. Not in the sport, in what you're saying there, knowing how much you need to eat and what foods you need to eat that are right for you to perform as a powerlifter. And that's key. And if, I'll tell you, if you have a bigger variety of food, you're more likely going to stick to it. If you're having a very regimented diet where you're eating one particular type of food all the time, you're going to get fed up and then you're going to stray. Yeah, and then yeah. you've got the psychological battle saying, oh, I didn't eat this, so I'm not going to perform well and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so do I just you- don't see it as being healthy. No, I agree. I, I actually really agree with you there. Um, so you do you do a lot of programming and coaching. Do you do the nutrition side as well, or is that something you just leave out and just make some basic suggestions? When it comes to the nutrition side, I don't tend to get like too involved in that. Sometimes you can spend a lot of time writing diets, and nine times out of ten, people can't stick to them. So the only information I'd probably offer them, I'll give them their macros. So if they're given their macros and they can sort of track what they're eating and make their sort of what they're eating fit in with those macros, and that's about as far as I'll go. Or if they want a, like a full-on nutrition program, I'll just refer them to someone else. Yeah. So you, uh, how long have you been programming, coaching people? Pretty much, I've been coaching. In terms of like, even when I was weightlifting, I was still sort of coaching weightlifters on a regular basis and that sort of thing, but sort of online programming um, and that type side of work, probably since... Probably about 2013, okay. 2012, 2013. Okay, and it's mainly, it, you know, you mentioned before off-air, MMA fighters, powerlifters, is there any, you know, is there any type of athlete just looking to gain strength that you'll work with? I'm quite lucky because I'm in a position where look, I can pick and choose what I want to work, so I don't have to be a personal trainer and train someone to lose weight in the gym. So there's a lot of the sports I coach people, I help people with, or the sports that I actually enjoy to watch and that sort of thing. So I know a little bit more about them rather than someone come in from 
a particular sport which I don't really have any interest in. So I think if I have a little bit of an interest in that sport, I can actually do a lot more for that person because I actually understand some of the sort of the requirements of that sport. Yeah, that's yeah, that's another thing that's so true, um, and I'm glad you're saying that because I do. You see a lot of coaches out there, and they're coaching people, maybe not to do the sport itself, not to play tennis, but I find it tricky, not impossible, but tricky for someone to coach someone to improve the dynamics of say their tennis game and strength for that if they've never really done it and and just to understand or never never even watched it let's say let's start with that i think if you're going to help someone perform in their sport the least you can do is spend a little bit of time trying to understand their sport and understand the requirements of their sport don't just sort of get them in the gym yeah i'm just going to train you to get stronger and that sort of thing because that just doesn't work yeah, like, yeah, if you get strong, there's going to be a crossover no matter what. But actually, you know, sometimes it can be detrimental yeah. depending on what Whatever you do, it has to transfer into that sport. And what you've got to do is also make your, like, your training sort of, like, for their strength to transfer in that sport, mm-hmm. not, like, for one rep max lifters. So, for example, coaches that injure people in the gym um, simply because they're training them too hard in the middle of the season. So yeah. it's making them understand that you can get people stronger, but you don't always have to test that strength long as it shows on the field or in their particular sporting activity, that's where it counts. Yeah, I, I know that was has been an issue, actually, in, in the past with a lot of American football players where certain coaches were literally, you know, they're training them so hard and they're strong guys, they're genetically quite gifted, a lot of them, if not all of them, and, like, testing one rep maxes and things. And middle of the season, they, then they're blowing, you know, they're blowing themselves out completely. And getting injured and like you say it's, that's not really necessary why does a right. why does a rugby player American football need to test their one rep max I mean what's the point yeah. and it's scary as well it's like technique for example so I was watching TV it must have been a couple of weeks ago just before um, the Premier League started back and my wife's a big Brighton fan um, and I was watching on TV and the, the players were training with weights and I just looked so like, that is horrific you've got players on there probably being paid 50, 100,000 pounds a week and they can't even do like an RDL properly. And it looked like they were actually going to injure themselves within their sort of training um, program. And I thought, these, these clubs are worth millions and millions of pounds. Who have you got in there advising your players how to train? Because it was absolutely terrible. And those guys advising them to train are probably paid a fair whack as well. Yeah, and, and, they, and they get paid a fair whack probably because they've got a university degree, but they've got no experience in terms of actually performing that movement themselves. So they've probably read in the book, RDL is a great exercise, works hamstrings, glutes and lower back. And they think, great, before you teach someone, at least sort of try and learn how to do the movement yourself. You don't have to be great at doing the movement, but at least you know the fundamentals of how that movement works. Yeah, yeah, so true. So is your, is your, all your coaching now, is it all online or do you do any face-to-face stuff? At the moment, it's all online. So I go back to doing some face-to-face stuff um, Maybe not straight away on um, July the 25th, but within a few days of that, I'll go back into some more one-to-one. Um, people are inquiring at the moment, but I can't really commit to anything because yeah. I don't know how the sort of booking system is going to work in the gym yet and what the requirements are there in terms of booking time slots for clients. And if you've got a gym, if people want to come to you, if you've got a gym that you work from? Yeah, um, I live in Eastbourne and I do all my one-to-one training out from um, Performance Fitness Gym. It's the okay. gym I actually train at. Okay, all right, fine. So I'll, uh, I'll plug that into this as well. 
Um, so your powerlifting, what's the goals going forward for you? One of my, I've got a few goals along the way. My main goal at the moment I'm going to focus on is I just want to do a 400 kilo deadlift. Okay. Um, that's the main one at the moment. Um, and I think this rest has actually um, helped me sort of take a couple of steps closer to doing that. Because like deadlifting at the moment, everything feels fast. Um, even weights you might consider heavy um, are moving really, really well. Yeah. So it's a question of just sort of getting that time peak into the right competition to make it happen. That's a, that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight, but I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll make it. I've got no doubt, to be honest with everything. Yeah, and I think the increased body weight's helped. Initially, um, I weren't sure whether it's the right way to go, but now in training, I feel the difference being that a little bit heavier as well. Yeah. Do you do any, um, I'm going a bit, I'm digressing a little bit here, but do you do anything in between? Do you do any cardio work or anything like that in between your four days? Or is, what do you do on the off days? Cardio is really simple. If, if I want to do cardio, I go out for a walk. Um, that, and that would be it. Just real, real simple. I'm not going to do anything that like overly taxes me or that I've got to spend a lot of time recovering from. So it's going to be detrimental to my workouts. Yeah, okay. I just want to get that in actually because when you're saying you're shooting up in body weight and you're feeling better, some, I mean, I know with some people can make them feel a little bit more like, you know, like out of breath and heavy. And I wonder if you've done any cardio to balance that out. Yeah, last time I got up to this body weight, I felt terrible and I sort of got straight back down again. That was like back when I was lifting a quip. But this time around, I feel much, much better for okay. a lot healthier. Um, I feel just as healthy as when I was lifting like one, 10 kilos lighter. So, so you've, done, you've done it in a better quality way this time? A much better quality way. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... 400 kilo deadlift, are you, are you mainly going forward? Are you competing more equipped or raw, or is it just a bit of both? Um, to be honest, my equipped days, I've done the equipped lifting. I've really enjoyed it. I've had an amazing experience, um, but that's in the past now. No, equipped lifting is phenomenally hard. It gets very, very disrespected by a lot of raw lifters, which basically are the guys that haven't really been in the sport for a long time. And also, don't really understand how the equipment works and the challenges of lifting equipped. Because equipped lifting is far more technical than raw. And basically, the small mistake you can make lifting raw, you can't make when you lift equipped because you get punished for them big time. Yeah. So it's a lot more, it's a lot tougher in that respect. But because you've got predominantly raw lifting now, I don't think equipped lifting gets the sort of respect it deserves. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I would be. And I, I give respect to any person that does any sport, I really do. But I would be in that category of what you're saying, people that have come into the sport in like the last few years and, and just do war only. But what impresses me about quick lifting, and I know this is not just the weight they're shifting, but the time and effort to get in the suits and to train and like, I'm like, man, I just don't have that. Like, I'm committed, but I don't have the patience. and. I rate the guys that have that patience. I really do. Let's put it this way. If you lift equipped, you probably do a few warm-up sets and you could spend sort of 15 to 30 minutes getting into your suit before you actually get into your squat workout. And then you could end up spending that time again trying to get your suit off. Man. And am um, I right in saying you have to... Sorry to interrupt. Am I right in have to say, saying you have to literally... You have to train, have training partners when you're equipped? Yeah, look, that's one of the reasons raw lifting is a lot more popular now. So, for example, in my lift, when I was lifting equipped, you'd have to, I'm not, I'm not saying I always had the number of people, you'd have, if you was to squat, you'd have to have at least five people around you. 
Mm. Six would be a more ideal, but at least five. And that's just because the amount of weight you're shifting. Yeah, so you'd need sort of like five guys spotting, and you would need, if it went wrong, you would need five people spotting, yeah. and then you'd need someone to work them on the left. Man, it's, uh, yeah, I can see where that becomes difficult because, you know, if you've got family, kids, and, and you know, other stuff going on in your life, it takes so much, it takes so much time out just to get the Yeah, it takes a long time to like the equip sessions if you do it properly. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose um, if you're not, I mean, it might, this might not be the issue, but if you're not able to commit to that amount of time and therefore not keep climbing to the top of the food chain, raw is much more convenient, should I say. Yeah, um, yeah, and also you, you may be able to commit that level of time, but have you got five people able to commit that level of time too to actually be around you when you squat? Yeah. And that's the, that's the bigger problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's why I rate it so much, the commitment it takes to lift quit I mean people shouldn't disrespect it because like they shouldn't disrespect any sport because any sport takes a degree of dedication and hard work and a lot of dedication and hard work to be at the top so I really don't get and I've heard it I don't but I really don't get the disrespect yeah. around the quick lifting also with, with the lifting sports as well even not even a top not to be a top lifter to just to be the best that you can be as a person you have to dedicate a lot of time so that doesn't mean you're going to be the best in Britain, the best um, in the world or whatever it may be. Just to be the best that you can be as an athlete, you have to sort of like put that time into it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree completely. And also, I mean, raw, raw powerlifting in this kind of form, especially like the IPF, quite young. It's not that old. You know, it's... Yeah. And, and there's trouble with raw powerlifting in the IPF. No disrespect, I love the IPF and I enjoy watching them lift. Um, and I can't say a bad thing about them. I think they're doing great things for the sport and great things to move the sport forward. Yeah. But the technique some of those guys are using to squat, you can see why a lot of them don't have extended careers. Talk, talk, talk. That's interesting. In, in what way do you mean? You just got to look at like the stances they use. So a lot of them are very, very close stance with a, a very, very low bar, and they're getting a massive forward lean on their squats. Yeah. So look, you, how many like if you look at the guys that are sort of the top end in were in the Britain over the last five years, um, how many of them have actually sort of had to stop due to back problems? Mm. Uh, quite a lot. And then you have got a guy like Tony Cleef. His his technique is a lot different to all the other guys. Yeah. And there's a reason why he's lasted for 20 years. He's a lovely squatter. And that's why. Yeah. If, I wasn't, if, like, if you compete in the IPF and you watch one person to squat and you want to learn something from it, watch Tony squat. Well, why do you think that is then? I mean, just why, why do you think it's guys in the IPF squatting that way and then in a different federation, like, I don't know, like the GPC, they're, what, they're squatting a different way. What, what, why is that, do you think? I think it just comes to sort of coaching. Sometimes, um, as a coach, you need to have like a broad spectrum. So you're not sort of focused on just one federation. You're focused on powerlifting and looking at everyone as a different person. So if someone comes in, you're going to look at them as a, a person squatting in front of you. You're going to try and make them as efficient as possible with their levers and mechanics. Yeah. And then, but there, it almost seems that everyone uses the same sort of squat technique. So there's like, a, a in a sense, one T-shirt fits all. But you get a few exceptions outside of that rule. I used to squat really low bar because that was the way I was sort of first taught. Um, 
and I compete in, in that federation and man, it just didn't work for me. But yet, it, I was keep, I, I, I was continuously pushed that way, like, no, this is the right way. And I felt like shit, I felt really weak from that stance. I was getting loads of tendonitis in my elbows. And that's the... It was all wrong. And I just, and I've changed it since. And I'm squatting a lot more and I feel a lot healthier and a lot better, to be honest. And that's the key. So I imagine if you keep that going for a long period of time, you're not going to get that fast short-term gain. But over time, you're going to be a lot stronger. A lot of these guys will get a fast short-term gain and overstress areas of the body don't really want to overstress. And over time, you're pretty much limited and it brings your career to a grinding halt and a lot earlier than it should be. Yeah, that's interesting you say that, actually. A lot of people probably say, I don't know what he's talking about, um, he's wrong. But that's just my opinion. Uh, my, it doesn't matter if you agree with me or not. My opinion is my opinion. Yeah, I might be wrong about a few things, but some things I'm definitely right about. Listen, you know what you're talking about. You've been 30 years. You definitely have... Experience is more valuable than anything else. So, I mean, I massively value your input when you say that. And, and I find it fascinating that, that, that you're saying that's, that technique is very specific to that federation. And that's... Um, that, that's that's, that's got to be fascinating to see how that plays out if more and more lifters do start pulling out. But in that federation, but there are exceptions to the rules. Like You've got guys like Tony's a good example. Yeah. Um, Ray Williams is a nut, well, he's the best example. Yeah. He's not squatting like that. If he tried to squat like that with the sort of weights he's shifting, could you imagine what would have happened to him before now? Yeah, he'd be finished. He'd be absolutely finished. I mean, you look at even some of the lighter guys like um, Taylor Atwood. Um, as well, that you know, he's he's quite a nice squatter, and well, he's a heavy squatter for his weight class, particularly. Yeah, and, and a lot of it should be guided to like guys like that, thinking that's the way you should be lifting, yeah. rather than looking to that sort of quick fix where oh, I've got weak quads, how am I gonna how am I gonna get around having weak quads? I know I'll use my back, yeah. Well, I watched, um, I watched when I was watching the worlds last year, I was watching a, a few of the lifters, there's one guy from Ukraine in the 74 kilos and he was literally doing a good morning like to come out like in every squat and you're watching it you're like damn man that, that's just an injury waiting to happen that is horrendous he was so far forward I, I don't I mean with that man was like 250 kilo on his back it's crazy at that weight class yeah and again it's like how long can your body take that for and that's one of the questions you've got to ask yourself when you go into it yeah, and also, the thing is as well, once the sport's over, you still want to live a good quality of life. You don't want to be sort of paying the price for basically abusing your body or using poor technique in your early lifting career. Mm. That, that's, uh, take note of that, guys, because, um, oh, yeah, that's how important is that? I mean, and there's no need. It's unnecessary. <laughs> just just train correctly and it's, you know, for the most part it's unnecessary to be a cripple isn't it I mean look at you you by the sounds of it you feel as good as ever and you're 30 years in yeah so I'll be like 45 um, on my next birthday and so I feel better now than when I was in like my 30s so that's mad do you find I mean it's not mad actually it's it's, it's, it's completely possible do you find um, you Notice differences though between your body at 30 and 45 in terms of like the recovery it needs and the way it needs to be treated. Um, I wouldn't say my recovery is any slower. Um, I know I can recover really well, but I, all I'd say is my body might be um, only slightly more vulnerable, okay. if that makes sense. 
So you just have to sort of work around that a little bit. Now that I've got like a good balance in training, then that, that's not an issue. So I've just, as the time's gone on to sort of go along with that, I've just adapted the training to it. Yeah, and I suppose as you get uh, slightly older and more experienced, you're more aware, aren't you? You're more aware of your body and what works for it and when it's ready to change things or back off or whatever. And that's, that's half the battle. And the key thing is, if you want to lift longer, sometimes you've got to lose the ego. So you might have something planned to go and to do a session, say, I'm going to do a free rep max on the, um, whatever lift it is. But if you walk into the gym and you realise you're not going to hit a PB, you don't want to chase it. All you're going to do is the free rep max for that day and then leave it. Yeah. You're not going to do one more set, just try and hit a PB when you clearly know it's not there on that day. And it's just making smart choices like that as you go along. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh... Again, I agree, and it's um, it's sensible because if you're in it for the long game, live to fight another session. Don't wreck yourself just by forcing things. Have you? Um, I mean, it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. But have you got any comps coming up? I've got some, I've got some that I've entered. Um, I don't know if they're 100 percent going to happen, but at the moment it looks like there's a good chance. So I'm going to compete in the WPC European Championships in November. Okay. But what they've done is um, they've taken the squat out completely because that's the hardest one to sort of manage the spots with like social distancing rules and that sort of thing. So they're just going to have sort of push-pull on that in November. All right, okay. Now, where is that? That's going to be in Manchester. Okay. So that is that is that your your next one you've got lined up? Yeah, that mean, as we've talked now, that's the next one I have lined up, yeah. Okay. Um, to be honest, like when, when you sort of think about it logically, um, do you really want to take a chance with this sort of thing where you're not 100% sure this virus is not sort of at bay and all that sort of thing? So you've got to keep yourself safe as possible. Yeah. Just make the sort of right choices. I mean, I spoke about it on the podcast before, but I had it. And um, I mean, I don't know if you know anyone that's had it or, or yourself, but I mean, I was less ill when I had my heart attack. I've, I've never been so sick in my life. I, th- I thought there was like days when I was so bad that I felt like if there was an off button on life, and I know it's a terrible thing to say, yeah. I just wanted to press it for like two days. I was so bad. So I do understand people not wanting to take a massive risk at the moment. Yeah. And I know those people that like, oh, you know, it's just a flu. Come on, we've got to get back on with our life. But I'm fairly young and I'm, he- I'm healthy and fit. And I was gone for four weeks. And it just shows you, and the scary thing about it is you get the extreme. So you get some people that don't get a symptom um, and they could just pass it around to everyone else. Mm. Some people like you get it quite to the extreme. Some people might get like a mild cough and others basically die from it. Um, and I don't think people take it serious enough because a lot of people's like online and even friends of mine say, oh, this is a lot of nonsense, it's not real and stuff like that. And my comment to that is if you lost a member of your family to it, would you take it more seriously? Yeah. And the answer to that is probably yeah. So you can't sort of say it's a load of rubbish where thousands of people have died from it. No, no, exactly. And um, it seems like a sensible thing they've done is, you know, at least you, at least you can go and compete and not have the risk with all the spotters around, I guess. And you kind of, they're, they're ticking all boxes there, aren't they? Yeah, they're putting like social distancing rules into place and just generally make it safe for the athlete. So the chances are they're probably... Um, say, have one flight of lifters or warm up social distance, and then when the next flight starts, probably tab everyone out, whole venue clean before the next group of lifters come in. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're going out their way, one, to make it happen, and two, to make it happen as safe as possible. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, like, it's, you know, it's, it's the best of both worlds. At least you get to compete and, and, and people can stay safe at the same time because, you know, we don't want to be in a situation where it keeps coming back and going. Just You can't do anything you want to do at the same time. So at least they're getting it on. They're getting it on again. Um, so, I mean, we're coming up to an hour 15. Been loved having you. I'm going to start to wrap it up. Anything you want to close on at all? I mean, where, where can people find you if they want coaching? If they want coaching, you can look for, contact me via my Instagram. That's a, a good port of call or my Facebook is another one. So just sort of private message me there and we can get the ball rolling from those um, two outputs. I'm going to link it to the show notes, but what's your, what's your Instagram? My Instagram is just my, my full name, just Delroy McQueen. Okay. So just type that up and it'll come up in the same with my Facebook. Awesome. Um, guys, I really suggest looking into it if you're someone interested in gaining strength, whether you're a strength athlete or an athlete for a specific sport um, with all the experience. I think uh, Delroy would definitely be able to have some good input for you. And, mate, listen, I've loved having you on. I'm looking forward to the 400 kilo deadlift when you finally smash that up. And um, I look forward to seeing you compete in November, to be honest, and things go back to normality and we can um, all start making some gains again. Oh, definitely. Um, I wish everyone the best of luck when they start training on um, July the 25th. But remember, don't run before you can walk. Take it nice and slow and give yourself a few months to build up to back to where you left off. Yeah, take that advice, guys. And um, Delroy, pleasure having you on. Um, we'll do it again. Maybe we'll do it again after you've um, you competed next time. Or oh, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Yeah, even after you pulled the four hundred or something, that'd be great to have you back on. But um, I'd still have you back on, even if you don't. Do <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not exclusive to that, of course. But yeah, mate, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for inviting me to be on. All right, buddy. Take care. Yeah, take care. Thank you.